The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Uh, if you have a, a Bible with you, please turn with me to John chapter 20. And we're going to start in verse 1. Uh, we're going to read this entire chapter. Okay, this chapter, it picks up immediately after Jesus' dead body was laid in a borrowed tomb. So Jesus has already been betrayed, arrested, he's been spat upon and disrespected, beaten and crucified. And his mangled, disfigured body was prepared for burial, wrapped in linens, and laid to rest. And now those of you that are familiar with the scriptures, maybe you've been a Christian a long time, or maybe you've just been to enough Easter services to be familiar uh, you know that John chapter 20 is the account of Jesus' resurrection. I just, I just want to encourage you with something before we move forward because I think that um, human nature has, has some unfortunate quirks that we tend to fall into. And so I just want to head those off right now. I, I think for some of us, we've been in enough Easter celebration services that we could probably guess you know, one of the five sets of verses that a pastor is going to go to to talk about this victorious and, and celebratory day. And we can maybe think you know, there's not much more to be said about it, but I just want to, I want to present it to you this way. I want you to think about it this way. Um, everyone just think about the best meal you've ever eaten, just for a moment. Now, I realize I, I thought about this before I used this analogy because I realize there's potential for me to lose some of you for the rest of this whole service because I've mentioned the best meal you ever had. Please, I need you to come back with me after that, but just think about it for a second. The best meal you've ever had, that thing you ate that just it puts you on cloud nine. Okay, think about that. Now, if I was to come and to offer that to you, say after service, I found out what it was, got somebody to make that for you just the way you like, and I brought that to you, would you turn that down because simply you'd eaten it before? However, <laughs> that's funny, isn't it? It is. But somehow, sometimes, somehow, we are tempted to treat the scriptures in that way. You see, the scriptures describe themselves as the bread of life. And so we come and we literally receive spiritual nourishment from the scriptures. And I just want to say to you, for the Christian, there should be no sweeter sound in all of the earth than the words that are that coupled together tell us the good news of the gospel. There should be no song that could evoke more emotion than the words of the gospel to the ears of a Christian because it is the good news that took us from death to life, from darkness to light. And so I encourage you today, we are going to stick close to Jesus, him crucified and his resurrection. We're not going to stray into some gimmick to try to convince you to come back because we may have roped you into one Easter service. We're going to stick to what is most important. We're going to talk about the very fact that if Jesus had not raised from the dead, that we above all people should be pitied because our faith means nothing. And so I just encourage you, take this journey with me. We're going to read a whole chapter. I, I realize that the, the uh, How to Put a Good Easter Service Handbook would say, do less scriptures because people might get bored. I'm just going to bet and assume and hope that our hunger for the word is going to trump the short attention span that TV's given us over the last few decades. Amen? Will you read this chapter with me? Will you rejoice with me over the words that, that tell us that Jesus is no, no longer dead, but he, he rose from death? Okay? Let's read about the empty tomb together. Um, so I'm in John chapter 20, and uh, I'm going to start in verse 1. Here we go. 
Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, He saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. And so Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb. Count on bold Peter, just run right in there. And he saw the linen wrappings lying there and the face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb then also entered, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead, so that the disciples went away again to their own homes. But Mary was standing outside the tomb, weeping. And so as she wept, she stood and looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, stop clinging to me for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came, announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. When he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands, the imprint of the nails, and I put my finger into the place of the nails, and I put my hand into his side, I will not believe. After eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas was with them. Jesus came, and the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger and see my hands. Reach here your hand and put it into my side, and do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Amen. To be a part of that first crew, to find that empty tomb. Mm. I'm glad I'm, I'm born and on mission in the time I am, but that would have been another good one to pick. Verse 31, which is the last verse uh, in the chapter that John is stating, what he's doing here is stating plainly 
what a reader of the Scripture should come to understand on their own. So here in verse 31, John is saying what somebody who reads the Scriptures carefully, they could come to this conclusion on their own. John wrote his gospel so that you may believe. He gives us the purpose for his writing, the, the wind in the sails that caused him to sit down and to work through what it took to record his gospel. And here's the question, that you may believe. Believe in what? What did he write a whole book to encourage us to believe? That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That believing you may have life in his name. Here John is stating the purpose for writing his gospel account, but he is also simultaneously stating the purpose for all of the scriptures. He's letting you know, I wrote this so that you may believe, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that in his name you may have life. But in the same moment, he could do that. He could, he could summarize all of the scriptures by saying the same very thing. That one point, the major theme, the most important, critical, and vital thing that the scriptures were written to communicate is the truth about Jesus. These scriptures are 66 different books. They're written by 40 different authors in 13 countries in three different languages, and yet they harmonize to tell one beautiful story. They perfectly declare one story, and, and that is to lead you to place trust and faith in one Savior, and his name is Jesus. The scarlet thread of the beautiful gospel is woven throughout the entire tapestry of the scriptures. Some of you may find that a hard pill to swallow. I'm going to show you. All of the Bible is written to lead us to trust and faith in Jesus. <clears throat> From the very beginning, we see the promise of his coming. In Genesis 3, we have what is known as the Proto-Evangelion. It's also called the first gospel. And there is promise there that the Son of Man will be injured but not overcome and that he will crush the head of our enemy, the devil. We're not three chapters in to the 66 books of the Bible and we're already seeing the gospel foretold. The history of the patriarchs with numerous and unmistakable foreshadowings of the coming redemption from Abraham and Isaac on the mountain and the sacrifice being provided for them. That story is dripping with foreshadowing and pointing forward to what's going to happen with Jesus. To Joseph being thrown in a pit and left for dead by his brothers, but by God's grace and power, rising to a place of prominence that allows him to extend mercy and save his brothers from starvation and death. Do you see the gospel in that story? How is it that thousands of years before, other than by the provident hand of God, do these things take place that point with such beauty and perfection to the very story that's going to happen between Jesus and those he comes to save? Joseph cast into a pit. What was Jesus put into? He's cast into a tomb. God takes him by his power, puts him then in a position where he can save all of those whom he loves. And you see the grace and the redemption flow from Joseph, not because he's a good man, but because clearly God has taught him something about grace and mercy. He then is empowered to save the ones who rebelled against him, the ones who hated him, the ones who betrayed him. Any of this sound familiar? Thousands of years before Jesus comes, this story is unfolding, and it's recorded for us in the scripture so that we can see. It's that scarlet thread woven all throughout, pointing us to Jesus. And Moses, who was sent with God's power to liberate a people from bondage who could not free themselves. Again, Jesus sent to save us. Who We could work as hard as we wanted. We could do whatever we wanted. We could try to organize and, and do it in and of ourselves. We could not ever free ourselves from the bonds of sin 
We were dead in our sin, and yet we see that God empowered Moses to go, gave him the anointing to go, just like he did to Jesus, to free his people. We see the poetic rhythm of the Psalms that shows us our creative potential comes from God. And we see the insights of the wisdom literature that hold true in every culture and thousands of years after being written. We see both the Psalms and the Proverbs just riddled and woven with allusions to Jesus and the gospel. And then come after that, we have the prophetic books, and that shows us the pain of sin and God's incredible patience and faithfulness. And it predicts with painstaking accuracy, those prophetic books, the accuracy, with, with accuracy, the birth, life, death, and resurrection of our Savior King. We're seeing that all through the scriptures, we, we, we could think that it's this, this conglomeration of a bunch of different stuff happening, but if you know how to look and you know where to look, you see that all the time we're being pointed to one person, being pointed to one Savior, one story. It's Jesus and redemption for us. So you come out of the prophetic books and then you have the four gospels. These are eyewitness accounts that coincide with all the prophets foretold about Jesus. So we see that the prophet said, this is where he's going to be born. This is what's going to happen. This is how it's going to go. It's going to be like this. And then he's going to die like this with a bunch of details that you couldn't guess if, by anything other than the supernatural power of God. And then we see these things come to pass just like they were prophesied thousands of years before. At, at a certain point, it becomes ridiculous to call things coincidence. There are coincidences, and I understand there are hyper-spiritual people that make every coincidence into some type of provident move of God, and, and I realize that sometimes that maybe takes away from the legitimacy of when God clearly does do things like says things through the mouth of prophets thousands of years before that are so specific that, it, it, I mean, I'm talking about where, not that just a baby would be born of a virgin, but where exactly? And it wasn't like it was Jerusalem. It wasn't like it was a, a big town that everyone would guess. It was Bethlehem. And that he would die a certain way that wasn't even invented yet. You understand this. The crucifixion was not invented when the prophet said that's how Jesus would die. How do you do that if God's not involved? Well, the easy answer is he was. And after the Gospels, we have the acts of the early church showing us that the Spirit of Christ is undeniably at work in the earth. And then the epistles teaching us how to live in light of the reality of Jesus and his Gospel. And revelation that promises us, promises us his return and establishment of his sovereign reign over all things. With no hint left of sin and the darkness it brought with it. So we just walk from Genesis to Revelation, no part of these scriptures is devoid of arrows pointing to our risen Savior King. All of the Bible, it's to call our attention to his greatness. We can learn everything God intended us to know from the scriptures. We can find answers to so many of our most important longings and questions. But the overarching theme of the Bible is written so that you may believe the truth about Jesus. The same point that John said, I wrote this gospel so that you may believe. It could be said of all the scriptures. Why is this so important? Because absolutely everything in this life and for eternity to come hangs on what you believe about Christ. 
The question that will determine what happens in this life and in eternity for each of us is not what have you done. The question is, will you believe in what he has done? It's a crucial and critical difference. Salvation, redemption, and freedom from sin only come by grace through faith in Christ alone. There are not multiple ways. There is only one way to be freed, to be healed of this sin sickness that separates us from the God that made us. There is not multiple paths. You can't believe what you want with fervor and get there. There's one way. It's been made clear. And I realize how offensive this is. And and, and if I'm offending you, I'm sorry, but I have to tell you the truth. Love demands of me to tell you the truth because everything that matters hangs on what you believe about this right here. you got to get this right. He was born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, died in our place, and rose again. That's why we celebrate today. That's why this is no small affair. That's why this is a big deal for us. I've been saying it all day. People shaking my hand and saying happy Easter. It's our day. This is our day. America's got 4th of July, and I like fireworks just as much as everybody else. But you want to see me excited. Let's talk about Easter. Today is our day. Today's the day sin and death was defeated for sure. He died on the cross, man. Those closest to him weren't even sure what was going to happen. They weren't totally convinced yet, but you come and you find an empty tomb. You get to put your finger in the holes of the hands of the risen Christ. And all that he said, all that he claimed to be, it becomes real. And we see that there was no deception in him. He was who he said he was. He's God in the flesh. That's who we worship. It's wonderful. Like John, who wrote the gospel bearing his name, I am deeply concerned with whether or not you believe the truth about Jesus. And with today being Easter, the day we celebrate his triumphant resurrection from death, I want to take time to remove for you some potential roadblocks that may be holding you back from believing this essential part of the gospel message. And before we talk about why believing that Jesus rose from death is is the most reasonable option of all that could be considered, I want to make clear what is at stake. If you are here and you are undecided about what you believe, joy, purpose, and fulfillment in this life and eternity are at stake. If you are undecided about what you believe about Jesus today, please let me say to you, open your heart and your ears to what I have to say. Hear the truth of the scriptures today because this is no small matter. If you're here today and undecided about what you believe about Jesus, it is not by coincidence you found yourself here today worshiping in this place. You've come here today to hear the most important thing. You've come here today to hear the truth about what matters most. Because again, you'll not get to the gates of heaven one day and be asked, what did you do? What did you do? So for so many of us, because of the culture we live in, we anticipate that all of this, whether or not I'll be in heaven for eternity or separated from God forever in hell, that it hangs on how good or bad I am. This is the, this is the, this is the lie and the deception that has been so pervasive. It, it's, somehow we've been convinced, and maybe it's because almost all of the rest of life is based this way. We are gauged and graded. We are paid for our performance. And so we assume that God is going to deal with us the same way. Here's the problem. If that was the way God did it, none of us would make it. None of us could pony up for the price that would need to be paid to erase the debt of sin. Because dead men can't work themselves back to life. And that is how Paul describes us in our sins. Spiritually, we are dead, completely separated 
We need the miracle power of King Jesus to come to make that heart beat again, to take it from stone to flesh. That's, that's what Ezekiel says. And so, um, praise God for that. I'm, I'm glad. And if you're here and you're a Christian, listen up, because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Jesus did not rise from death, then you should be pitied because your faith means nothing. Do you understand that what you believe about the resurrection, the details are important? Because Paul said, if Jesus did not rise and did not rise bodily from the dead, that we should be pitied above all people because we are delusional. Our faith should be cast aside. We should no longer sacrifice, sing to, praise, or worship Jesus. The resurrection is not an optional part of the gospel message. If he did not rise, then we're in a lot of trouble. So it matters. What, I, I stopped a moment because now I'm going to talk about some of the things that people would say to try to discredit Jesus rising from the dead. And you could, you could be tempted to click off, but I want you to understand, we're, we're talking about something that matters as much as anything else and probably more than anything else. For the Christian, we need to know these things. We need to know that we may be working with someone that one of these very things, they've been on YouTube and heard some guy said that sounded like he knew what he was talking about, that, you know, Jesus this or Jesus that, or here's why the resurrection is, you know, is, is false and is a lie. We, we should be passionate about this truth. We should prepare ourselves uh, with, with an apologia, as 1, 1 Peter 3.15 says, that we would, we would have an answer ready for the hope we profess. It's not enough in this day and age for us to just run around and say, the Bible says that Jesus rose from the dead. You should believe that. Now, I wish it was, and it should be. If things were as they should be, I should be able to walk in anywhere at any time and say, here's what these scriptures say plainly. Jesus is king. Submit to his lordship. Jesus rose from the dead. Worship him as such. That's how this should work. But let's be real. Is that the culture we live in? Is that the day we live in? No. Then as faithful soldiers of the cross, we prepare ourselves with the truth. Not so that we can go and cut, cut people's noses off and then try to offer them a rose to smell, but so that we can go with love and that we can have answers to their questions. Did I say that too fast? It's an evangelistic principle. I actually, I was explaining to a young man I was doing outreach with um, downtown last week. We encountered this guy and he kept, he kept trying to tell me that um, we are all gods. Or I'm not sure he had some type of strange perspective out of, out of the scripture, some type of quasi theology going on, and um, the, the young man afterwards was kind of asking me about why I dealt with the guy the way I did, because, you know, he was trying to shoot some scriptures, had them out of context, and he was clearly confused, and, um, you know, the guy said, man, you could, have, you could have took that guy apart. I know you could have just shredded with scripture to scripture those arguments, and I, I, I sat him down, and I said, what you have to remember is <clears throat> you can't cut off somebody's nose and then offer them a rose to smell. You understand that if we're going to bring the, the truth and the beautiful gospel to someone, we can't do it through spite or because we want to win an argument. Love always has to be the motivation. We should care about that person's eternal destination. If that's not why you're in the conversation, then get out of it because you'll only do damage. But I'm believing that this is a church full of people motivated by love, that because Jesus has loved you so well that you care deeply about people having joy in this life because they walk with Jesus and have joy for eternity because they're with him. Is that true? Am I in the right place? Amen. Okay. Amen. Awesome. Now, uh, no one that wants to be taken seriously tries to deny the existence of Jesus. His life and miracles are they're, they're just too well documented 
uh, to really dispute that Jesus was a historical figure, that he did walk the earth. Um, but some seeking to discredit him will try to explain away the miracle of his resurrection. Now we're going to look at some of these attempts to reduce the resurrection from a miraculous display of God's glory and power to some simple naturalistic explanation. And we will see together if these hold up under scrutiny. Uh, First of all, one way that some will try to discredit the resurrection is to claim that Jesus never actually died, but that he only fainted on the cross. Uh, This comes in various forms and flavors. Some of you may have encountered it uh, or heard it called the swoon theory. Uh, And and you understand the implication here. If Jesus didn't actually die, there was no miraculous resurrection. You understand why someone would try to argue for this. Someone who does not want to submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ does not want the resurrection to be true as the Bible states it because if it is, they understand the implication is he's lord and king and God. And so what he says goes. And human nature from the beginning has been rebellion and pride. And so in in an attempt to push away from that, to scratch a way out of that implication, people will say silly things, like, he didn't really die, so there was no real resurrection. He just, the the dampness and the coolness of the tomb woke him after he fainted on the cross. Okay, here's the first reason why that is not the most reasonable option to believe about what happened that day. First of all, just to understand the torture that Jesus endured. First of all, he, he was beaten, okay? He, they didn't just crucify him quick. They, they tortured him first. They beat him. Part of that beating included a whip called a cat of nine tails. It's, uh, it's got nine uh, leather strands woven into the ends. You'd have bits of bone, um, pottery, whatever they could find that was sharp. He was beaten with this. Uh, historical accounts would say that ribbons of flesh, as that, as that whip would sink its way into the back of a man, ribbons of flesh would be torn off as it came back. Uh, that was first, 40 lashings with that. He had a crown of thorns driven into his brow. He was beaten along the way, his beard pulled out, spat upon. Uh, to let you know some, somewhat the physical condition he was in before he was crucified, the Bible accounts that he could not even hold the cross member to the cross as he carried it to his own crucifixion, another form of of humiliation is to carry your own implement of death up the hill and let the crowd watch you as you go by. He couldn't do that. Someone had to come in and help him carry it. So he's already, because of loss of blood and because of torture, uh, not able to carry that. Uh, It makes it hard to believe then that after having nails driven through the most sensitive nerve centers on the body and hanging there for six more hours bleeding out, that then a couple days later he woke up from that and had the strength to roll a stone away from a tomb. Some more of the math doesn't add up. I'm not the brightest, I promise. I'm well aware of that. But at some point, one plus one equals two. And this, this arithmetic isn't adding up for me. You also have to realize that um, this, this, this job was not done by amateurs. Uh, the Romans were professional executioners. And uh, the men that dealt Jesus his torture were no exception. Uh, and to make sure that Jesus was dead before they allowed him to come down off the cross, um, you know, they didn't get a... You know, um, they didn't get a ladder and go up, you know, and, and gently put a thumb on his wrist and, and see if they felt a pulse. Oh, yep, he's gone, guys. Let's get him down. That's not how it went. Instead, the way to check to, to you know, probably stay away from the mess of a body mangled by that kind of torture, they took a spear and thrust it up beyond the rib cage into the heart sack. And what they were looking to see is this blood and water flow that tells me 
this person is indeed dead. All of this adds up to getting to a point where, assuming that what actually happened is that Jesus just fainted after all of this and, and three days later woke up, that, that, uh, that that's a more reasonable explanation than what God said would happen. I'm believing that it took the miraculous power of God to bring a body that had gone through that type of torture back to life. That's the most reasonable thing. And that's part, of, that's part of, I believe, the call of my life, but something I just want to keep putting in front of you. Somehow, somehow, we get made to feel like fools for believing what we believe. There are people that would try to make you feel like you're on the level of a child believing in the tooth fairy to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Can I please tell you today that there is a far chasm between the two. It's not the same thing. There is evidence, logical, reasonable thought process that goes into... Now, at the end of the day, can I prove to you beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus rose from the dead? I, I can't. I didn't, I didn't have a video camera in the tomb to watch it happen. However, I can have all the evidence just like I could for anything else. I can see what, what does the evidence stack up to say? And it just doesn't seem to me that Jesus fainting on the cross, reviving himself three days later and rolling the stone away to pull off this, this charade um, is, is probably the most reasonable thing. I think the most reasonable thing is Jesus died on that cross. And God's miraculous power had to raise him from death. Especially since the prophets had been foretelling that. Jesus had been saying it was going to happen. It just kind of lends to the credibility. Amen? Amen. Some say, I think this is the weakest argument, some say that those who hated Jesus stole his body. Um, here's the reality. This is real simple. The folks, these folks, the ones who hated Jesus, the ones who didn't like the fact that um, he taught things counter to what they taught, uh, they wanted nothing more than to discredit the resurrection. That was what they wanted above all else. And so, if they had the body, if they had stole it, they would have happily produced it. Because all, that would have, if they could show everyone, here is the dead body of Jesus, we're six days into it, he's not raised from death, all that he claimed was false, they would win. That's not what happened. They didn't have his body, so they couldn't do that. That's why it didn't happen. So that theory, I think, I think is the weakest of all the detractors. Um, I think a, 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 if you're just looking objectively, probably the strongest uh, theory that people try to put forth um, as a detraction from the biblical account of Jesus' resurrection is that the disciples stole Jesus' body because what this was was not a savior king coming uh, to redeem his people, but this was a mass hoax, okay? Uh, here's some reasons why I don't think the disciples stole his body. Matthew 27 makes it very clear that the doubters were the only ones who were really anticipating him to potentially return. If you look at Matthew 27, you'll see that uh, those that hated Jesus asked for a, a Roman guard to be put onto the tomb because they said, we remember that the, the deceiver said, speaking of Jesus, that he was going to die and rise again in three days. And we don't want somebody trying to steal his body and make this deal up and, and, and deceive people. So let's put a guard in front of the tomb, right? It, it's interesting because... Uh, the, those that were detractors, those that didn't believe Jesus' message, they remembered that he said that, but it seemed the disciples hadn't fully caught on yet. We read that even in John 20. 
they're shocked and freaked out when Mary Magdalene says, guys, th- th- there's no one in the tomb. The rock's off. They're like, we don't believe that. And then, and then you get, you get uh, Peter and John come. They, they see it. They try to tell the others, like, yeah, no, I don't think so. All the way down to Thomas saying, look, man, if I don't see him and touch him, I'm not believing that. So it didn't seem like they were in a mental position to go try to pull this, this deception off. Now, let's just say that let's just say that they did. Let's just say that that was all a ploy. They were acting that, you know, that was all fake, which, which doesn't totally doesn't make a lot of sense. And we'll really wrap that up here in a second. But let, let's just ask some other questions. Um, what would make us think the disciples, who consisted of tax collectors and fishermen? basic everyday guys could go and overcome Roman guards that were trained to kill anything that moved, um, take care of them, and take Jesus' body and, and no one hear about it, know about it, whatever. Come on. Paul also says in 1 Corinthians that Jesus appeared to over 500 people, most of whom were alive when he wrote that. So Jesus, or I'm sorry, Paul writes this letter um, to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, in, in chapter 15, he says, Jesus appeared to this guy and this guy, and then he appeared to 500, and many of those people, some have died, but many of those people whom he appeared to, they're still alive. And then this letter is distributed. And so if somebody was there, saw Jesus, or, or if somebody was there and knew that, look, that's, he's lying, I was there. I know, nobody, ever, nobody ever saw Jesus. 500 people didn't see Jesus. Somebody would probably raise their hand and say, eh, I don't think that's true. But the problem is, many, many people saw Jesus alive. And, and I, don't think it was, I don't think it was the Jesus, or I don't think it was the disciples, you know, just, just carrying, carrying around his carcass and doing a good job, you know. What's that called when you got a doll over here and... What? Ventriloquist, right. Yeah, I don't think they were doing a ventriloquist thing with, with Jesus. Just don't, don't think they had the talent. Here, here's to me one, probably the strongest evidence that I, I don't think the disciples stole his body. I don't think it holds any water. Because the reality is that something changed these men. Something changed these men. They scattered while he was being crucified. You see that all of them run in fear. The, the reality is part of why I think they missed what even his detractors caught. You see, those that didn't believe him realized what he was saying. They realized he was saying, go ahead and kill me, I'll be back in three days. But somehow his disciples missed this because they were so focused on their own perception of what they thought Jesus was coming to do. Their perception of Messiah was that he was going to come, lead an armed rebellion against the oppression of of the Roman government and that they were going to overthrow them and that he was going to sit on a throne above them there and then. That was what they were looking for. And so to think that the guy they gave up their life to follow, we're going to, we're going to be, you know, right with him like, like King Arthur's knights. We're going to be top level leadership. This is going to be awesome. They keep asking him, when's it going to happen, Jesus? When are you going to, you know, when, when are you going to quit making a bunch of bread and fish for people and healing people? When are you going to, you know, pick up a sword and start whooping some Romans? When is this going to happen? Like we're, we're excited for that. And he keeps telling them, guys, I'm going to die. I'm going to die at their hands. But don't despair. I'm coming back. Don't despair. Three days later, I will rise. They can, they can break this temple down, but in three days, it's coming back. And they didn't catch it. They were blinded by their own ambition. They were blinded by their own perception of what was going on. And so they missed it. And so as Jesus is being crucified, they're going, what is happening? 
They're waiting up until the point where he's nailed to that cross. They're waiting for him to jump up and start windmill kicking people. Like, what's, what's happening? This is not the way I thought this was going to go. And then they see him bleed and they see him die and they see him say it is finished. They see him take his last breath. They see darkness come over the land and they realize, my God, I left my livelihood for a guy that promised a bunch but didn't deliver. That's where the disciples were at. Why would they go to steal his body? They were regrouping and trying to figure out how they were going to survive the coming oppression that was going to be a result of even being associated with Jesus. That's what they were doing. They were hiding in a room. They weren't looking to do some hoax. And here's the thing. So you see that that's where they're at. You see Peter denying him, right? You see the other disciples running. They're scared. They go from that. Something happens. Something takes them from men afraid and hiding to a group of men that begin and become pillars of the church of Jesus Christ as it spreads throughout the first and second century. We see men that all of them save one, die martyrs' deaths, refusing to recant the truth that they knew. Something changed. Guys that were too scared to stand there, other than John, to see Jesus be crucified because they're afraid they're going to get wrapped up in what's going on. Those guys go from that to do what you will. It says in the book of Acts that they're, they're taken in and they're told, quit preaching about Jesus or we're going to kill you. And just, just so you know that we're serious, they give them a beating, a real good one. And, and these guys, guys that were too scared to let anybody know they were associated with Jesus, they go from that to getting a beat down, walking outside, laughing and singing songs saying, I count it as great joy to be able to suffer in the name of my king. Something happened there. How do you go from scared misfits to guys bold all the way into death? How does that happen? I think it's you see a risen Jesus. I think it's risen King Jesus shows up in the room and says, peace unto you. Come here and touch these hands. You got something to eat? Let me eat that piece of fish. Let me let you know beyond a shadow of a doubt. I'm not a spirit as the Gnostics would say, but God's raised my body from the dead. So you would know that all I said is true. I'm here. I think something like that is how you change a bunch of guys from a bunch of sissy la-las to guys that are willing to go to death to stand for what's true. How else do you get there? Not for a lie. Not because we all got in a room and decided, well, let's cook up this thing. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll get famous. <laughs> yeah, they, yeah, they got famous. Famous on the wanted list. That's all they got for it. There was no motivation for the disciples to have some ploy to go whoop the guards and roll the stone away and steal the body and tell everyone that Jesus... What did they gain? Death of terrible sorts. James was killed with a sword. Run through the sword. Peter, Peter was crucified once they caught up with him. In all of these, all of these situations we have, those in power not wanting allegiance shifted from them to King Jesus. And so each time, these, as they catch these apostles, they catch these disciples of Jesus, what they're doing is not just killing them as a punishment. What they're trying to do is they're trying to get them to recant. They want to try to apply pressure through the fear of death to get them to say, what you've been saying is not true. That's what recant means. Recant what you've been saying. Let everybody know this was an elaborate hoax. And so as they refuse to do that, James is run through with a sword. 
And as, as Peter refuses to say that, they say, okay, well, you're going to die like he did. We're going to crucify you. And here's Peter's response. The guy, the guy that denied him three times that day, that wouldn't admit to a young girl, yeah, I was with Jesus. Same guy. He says, just do me this favor. Would you hang me upside down? I'm not worthy to die like he did. How do you go from denying Jesus three times, Peter, to hang me upside down? I'm not worthy to die like him, Peter. I think you have an encounter with a risen Lord and Savior. Call me crazy. Thomas, the one who said, I will not believe unless I touch those hands and put my fingers into that side. That guy, he, he had some doubts. He had some issues. He was concerned about what was true. You see also in that, these guys weren't pushovers. They weren't just, I'm going to believe anything because somebody told me to. They were skeptical too. Let me say this. God's not scared of your questions. You may be skeptical, but here's what I'm telling you. The truth is the truth. And if you're open to it, if your heart is open, if you're not just trying to throw out questions because you want to avoid implications, but you really want to know what is true, God will reveal that to you. The truth is that what the Bible says about Jesus is real, that he loves you and he proved it. Thomas, the doubter, as they tried to get him to recant, they ran him through with spears and then burned him alive. You can just imagine a spirit of time being run through him. We're going to burn you. Say it. Say that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. We know you're lying. Say it. You can imagine the torch coming and being put to his feet and the smile on his face. Come sweet death, where is your sting? You have no victory. Go ahead and do it because you're not going to get me to say what you're trying to get me to say. I know the truth. I've seen him. I've touched him. Bartholomew. He was flayed and then crucified. Wouldn't recant. Paul, he did not, he wasn't there when Jesus was crucified. He wasn't there to see his death and torture, but Paul encountered the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. Committed the rest of it, went, went right from that point. See, another drastic, you gotta, you gotta explain this somehow. How do you get a guy headed on a road to go kill Christians because he thinks that's his mission from God? This is the mental state that Paul, who was Saul, that's, that's where he's at. That's where he's going. That's his, his life deal. I'm going to go kill Christians because they're lying about this Jesus deal. Something happens on the road to Damascus, and he goes from that, that guy, to I'm going to go to all the Gentiles and make sure they know the gospel's for them too. From Christian killing guy to I'm going to give the rest of my life to see as many people as possible come to know the good news about Jesus. What happened? You don't, you don't eat a bad piece of fish and have that kind of transformation, right? He didn't, he didn't pick some of the wrong wild mushrooms on the way to Damascus and woo, that wears off. Something happened in his heart. Something changed him all the way on the inside. I believe he encountered the risen Christ. He was beheaded. Come on, bring it. I won't say what you want me to say. I've talked with him. I can't deny what's happened to me. I'm with Jesus. Do what you will. I don't think the disciples stole the body. I don't think you'd get men to die like that for a hoax. Though the specifics of their deaths are different, they all died for the same reason. They refused to say anything other than that they saw Jesus die and they saw him alive again. These men died for Easter. They wouldn't walk away from it. So what then are we left with? We've got these detractions. We've got these other potential 
theories about what could have happened, what are we left with when we really observe those with a reasonable mind? We're left with the truth. And the truth is Jesus was exactly who he said he was. He was God become a man. He was the sinless substitute sent to be sacrificed in our place for our sins. That's the truth. All of his extravagant claims would have been revealed as deception or the babbling of an insane man had he stayed dead in that tomb. But he didn't. But he didn't. He would have been a deceiver, a liar, an insane man, or worse had he stayed dead, but he didn't. He rose. Three days after being tortured and murdered, Jesus Christ was physically resurrected from the dead. This is the truth. And it brings us to an inescapable point of reckoning. We have to deal with that. If that's the truth, if all the evidence is collected and the reasonable, there is an element of faith here, I understand, but even without that, the reasonable answer brings you to Jesus was who he said he was. That brings us to a point of reckoning. All of the scriptures are written so that we may believe in Jesus and the promise of resurrection through his finished work. And it's not only the scriptures that declare this truth. Martin Luther said this, Our Lord has written the promise of resurrection, not in books alone, but in every leaf of springtime. Is it not beautiful that this time of year is the time that we mark and celebrate the resurrection of King Jesus as we see all that was dead because of winter? Even the seasons are ordered to declare the glory of this truth of the resurrection of King Jesus. Even the seasons are ordered that it awakens in us the hope of resurrection as all those things that are dead in winter burst forth with new life. God has done all that is necessary that we may believe. The question is, will we believe? Will you believe the gospel about Jesus? Will you believe the good news about him? Will you admit that you are imperfect and thus a sinner in need of a savior? Will you surrender your pride and declare your desire for King Jesus to assume his rightful place as Lord and King of your life? If you're already a believer, are you more excited today than you've ever been about this beautiful good news? Are your passions and are your affections stirred by the gospel? We've spent I don't know how many minutes just talking about the fact over and over again that he's rose from the grave. What happens in you, believer? Is your heart stirred as you've heard these things? Is hope risen anew in you? Do you feel excitement rise? Are you impassioned and emboldened to go from here and spread this message? Are you sharing this gospel because it flows in and out of every part of your life and thus it opens doors for dialogue with those that you encounter on a daily basis? Are you so consumed with the truth of this gospel that it envelops every part of your thoughts and your words and your actions? This is the call of Christ. He said, that we must take up our cross and follow him. That's, there's sacrifice in that call. We must match him. He showed us what love is. He showed us what devotion is. He showed us what it looks like to love someone. You lay down, their life for, you lay down your life for them. He went first, and he's asking us for no less. The beauty is that he doesn't call us all to die in his name, but to live in his name. Now, don't misunderstand me. If it came down to it and it was deny Christ or die, the decision's made for me. Me and my family have talked about it. We know where that's going. 
But in the absence of that opportunity, will I live for him each and every day? To be clear, I've said the word gospel much, and I want to be clear when, when, when I let you, and, and let you know what I mean when I say that. Gospel means simply good news. And in order to understand the gospel properly, I can't just tell you that Jesus saves you from your sins. I have to go back to the beginning. We have to understand how we got where we are. The Bible is clear that God created all things, that he spoke and created all things. He made all things perfect from the beginning. But after that, man rebelled. Man thought that being equal with God in knowledge of good and evil was, was better than submitting to him and living in relationship with him. And so we rebelled. From that point on, the stain of sin is upon all mankind. Every single one of us is imperfect. And I need to, I need to say this to you because in our culture, to fly the flag and say, well, nobody's perfect, it, it almost... It almost seems like it, it releases us all because we're, because we're all imperfect. Well, how could you expect anyone to be and thus we are all excused by our group imperfection? That's not the way it works. It just means we're all in really serious trouble. Every single one of us is a sinner by nature and choice. We are all imperfect and that doesn't give us any excuse. It, it vibrantly illuminates for us our need for a Savior. We are all in desperate need of Jesus and the power of his redemption. Nobody is perfect. That's why the gospel has to flow out of your life to every single person you encounter. Yeah, nobody's perfect. We all desperately need Jesus. And so we're separated from God by sin, but that's where the good news comes in. The bad news is every one of us has sinned. Every one of us is imperfect. Thus, every one of us is separated from our perfect God. That's real bad news. But that's what makes the good news so precious and beautiful and wonderful and exciting. That's why we celebrate and sing. That's why we give and sacrifice our lives for this message. It's that good. The good news is Jesus came. He came with the remedy. He came, born of a virgin, lived the perfect life, the one we could have, should have, but didn't. He did it, and that made him able to stand in. God, God saw fit to let Jesus stand in and be the sacrifice that would pay the price for all of our sins if his perfect blood would flow, it would cover us. That's what, the, that's what the cross is about. It's not divine child abuse. As those that are ignorant would, would try to put forth and, and flip what's happening there from the beauty of redemption to some kind of God being some type of monster. What he's doing is rescuing us, his children. And Jesus was a willing participant in that. Not my will, but your be done. That's what he said to the Father. Though he struggled because he knew. He knew what he was going to go through, and it wasn't easy. Grace is free to us, but it wasn't free. A high price was paid. And so Jesus did it. He died the death we should have in our place for our sins, and that leads us to today. He did die on the cross. He did breathe his last breath. They did take him down. They did wrap him up. They did stick him in a tomb, but he didn't stay there. Three days later, he rose validating all that he said, validating all that he did, and making clear for all of us, for all the rest of the generations that are allowed to exist upon this earth, that he is King, Lord, God, Messiah, Master, and should be treated as such, should be worshipped as such. That's what I invite you to today, to lay yourself down, lay your pride down. Quit demanding to be Lord of your own life. It's not gone well, and it won't. 
There's only one God who loves you. There's only one king who wants to lead you with that love. So, Lord Jesus, we invite you to receive him today. And it's, it's, not, like, it's not like the rest of this world. You don't, you don't feel the conviction of the beauty of this gospel right now. And, and, and you don't, I don't want you to buy into the lie that what you should do now is, is go from here and, and really, really white-knuckle it and do better. Clean yourself up. Get to the point where, because surely where you're at right now, God could not accept you. Please let me speak to you. You're not the exception to the rule. The blood of Christ will cover your sins. God is willing to forgive you today. It's, it's not about you doing better. It's about you believing that he did better. <laughs> Will you believe? That's the point. That you may believe. I want you to believe. It matters to me that you believe. It mattered to John. He wrote a book so that you would believe. Why? Because he passionately cared that every person that would read that book, that they would know the way to salvation is not through you, but it's through Jesus. Will you believe? And as you believe, you, you could be saying, I've, I, but I've, I've tried to do better so many times. If you will submit your life to Jesus, what happens is he comes, he takes out that sinful heart, and he gives us a new heart. He's not just going to make a better version of you. He's going to make you new all the way. And then by his spirit and by his grace, those things that you know you need to change, that you're convicted about right now, those things that you're bothered about, that you don't know if God could accept you because of, he'll work on that. He's, he's not going to demand that you do that, then come to him. He says, come to me and let me help you through that. He's going to go through and start undoing those shackles that have held you down. And he takes joy in it. It's beautiful. That's what we invite you to today, to receive Christ. Make him king and Lord. For some of you, some of you, it's just, it's just been a long time since you've lived in light of this gospel. I invite you today to ask God to help you, to renew and and to stir the fire and passion in your heart that matches the amazing beauty of this story. This, is, this gospel should not conjure in us some lackluster reaction. To understand this gospel should cause us to lay everything down with joy, with a smile on our face. Say, King Jesus, take all that I have and do better with it because I know that you can. We can't have some half-hearted response to this. If that's what you have, then it, it, then it tells you you probably have not grasped its depth and beauty. And I invite you to keep thinking about it. <laughs> I invite you to keep pressing into it. The only place you're going to have joy and purpose and fulfillment, the things that you're looking for. Everyone thinks, everyone thinks God's the fun police, that he's looking to just restrict you from things, to get you to follow some code of rules. God is glorified when his children have joy. Do you understand that? But it's not joy on your terms. You need, to, you need to understand that much of the things you think you want probably aren't good for you. If you're willing to submit yourself to God who knows you better, who's known you longer, who made you, <laughs> who's your creator, if you'd submit yourself to his will, much of those desires that you have that don't line up with his, those will fall away. He'll replace those. And your desire and his, it'll get to the point where they're woven so tightly they can't be distinguished. That's what you want. That's what we're looking for. There's joy in that. There's no more, there's, you're not struggling and striving against the God who loves you. You're working with him. It's awesome. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. That's what I invite you to today. And if it wasn't for Easter, I couldn't. If Jesus didn't rise, I couldn't invite you to that. 
I couldn't lay this beautiful gospel before you and offer it to you as a gift of grace through faith. And so I say to you, Happy Easter. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Lord, we love you. Lord, we are grateful people. Lord, week in and week out, we, we try to make much of the beauty of your gospel. There's much to be said in your scriptures, and we don't think that the good news of the gospel is the only thing that your Bible says. However, we know that all that your scriptures say, they tie back to that central theme that all of the scriptures are pointing us to Jesus. So whether we're studying an Old Testament book, it doesn't matter. We're looking for that beautiful scarlet thread that draws us back to the remembrance of Jesus and his sacrifice. It doesn't matter what epistle we're in. We realize that it's teaching us how to live in light of this beautiful gospel because this is the crown jewel. This is the, it is, it's the greatest treasure we have. It is it is what matters most, and so there is nothing in the scriptures that does not somehow connect to this beautiful gospel, and Lord, we're glad about it. We're not tired of hearing about it. It's, it's like eating that best meal. It's savory, Lord, and, and to, to hear it again and again, it's beautiful to our ears. I don't care how many times I hear your gospel spoken, Lord, it, it brings joy to me. And Lord, may this be true of us. I ask that the joy of your gospel would overtake the busyness of this world, that as we go this week, we not be overtaken by the stress and the, the things that so often distract us, but Lord, let us, let us live just consumed with joy because we've been bought and we've been rescued and redeemed, that we've been stolen away from darkness and death and brought into the kingdom of light and, and love. Let us rejoice in this, Lord. And I just, I just pray for every person within the sound of my voice, Lord God, I ask, that, I ask that you would continue to stir their affections, that all of their allegiance would be yours, Lord. I ask you to continue to press in, going through their life, Lord, removing anything that distracts them from you. Lord, I ask you that every person, that every person here, Lord, that you would, by your Holy Spirit, begin to illuminate any idols that may exist in their life, Lord, and I ask you to... Help them have the desire to crush them. Not that you would have to come in and force them, but God, that you would, you would illuminate their understanding so that their great desire would be to serve you wholly and to not be distracted. And Lord, please, please drive into our hearts an excitement for the inescapable implication of this gospel that for every single one of us that understands the truth that we have been saved from our sins, set free from death, please, Lord, let it sit heavy upon us that we are then called to share that truth, that, that all of our life should be centered around the mission you've given us to go, to make disciples, to give this beautiful gift, this good news to as many people as possible. Let us not treat this as a trivial thing. We really love you and we need your help, Lord. We thank you for Easter. Thank you for rising. Thank you for being who you said you were. We praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit 
www.mylovecitychurch.org.